We were talking about the Olivet Discourse today, and again, this has important prophetic information. Jesus is going to tell us what is coming. The disciples wanted to know what is coming. So if you would, there's going to be three verses today. Stand as we read the Word of God together. Remember why we stand when we read the Word of God. We honor God by standing when we read His Word. His Word is precious, and we recognize that. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us what to expect as this world devolves into chaos. You are coming back to rescue us one day. And Lord, I am sensing that it is soon and very soon we will see the king. Thank you for this time to study your word. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And we say this just about every week. You know the king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God. Remember the song, he's coming for me. Hopefully you can say that. He's coming for you. Now, where are we in our teaching? It is Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. He will be killed on Friday. It is actually Tuesday evening when he's going to be speaking with his disciples. In chapter 23, 1 through 39, he has just had the woes that he has given to the Pharisees. Remember, he gave seven woes. Remember, these woes were not gleeful criticisms. They were sorrowful rebukes of the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus is is not all gleeful when people reject him. It actually breaks his heart, and it was broke his heart that these Pharisees weren't coming into the family of God. He gives the seven woes. He calls them five times blind. Just an example, blind guides, fools and blind, you blind Pharisees. And he told them repeatedly, you look great on the outside. You're the looking good people, but on the inside you are unclean. Remember we had those whitewashed tombs and the tombs that weren't whitewashed and how they were just appeared to be clean. And then Jesus, at the very end of chapter 23, gives us a heads up on what's going to happen to his church. Now, oftentimes people will ask this question, why does God allow his people to suffer? Why does God allow the tragedies that happen with missionaries being killed or people being killed all over the world for their faith? Why does that happen? Because the spiritual part of the human being is much more important than the physical. The physical, this is temporal. This is temporary. And if we live for Christ and die for Christ, that is the greatest thing that we could ever do. The greatest thing we could ever do. He's going to prophesy about the future in 2334. Therefore, indeed, I say, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Why did these guys get killed and persecuted? Because of their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, your word witness is martyrio. The root word is martyr. Martyr. All the way to the death, we are to represent our Lord. And remember, he's, you don't have to worry about having the strength to do this. 
God gives you the strength at the time to finish your race. So don't sweat, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. The Spirit of God will give you the strength at the time. Let me ask you a question. Was the early church persecuted? Yes, it was. They, tens of thousands, thousands and thousands of Christians died in Rome at the hands of Rome. The simple name of Jesus evokes hate throughout the world. You can mention a generic God, but if you mention the Lord Jesus Christ, hate comes forward. Jesus did not advocate an overthrow of government. He wasn't a threat to a government as far as overthrowing them, but oh, what he taught could change the people's hearts, and they feared that. Jesus did not advocate hating your enemies. Jesus did not advocate anything that the culture stands against, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, exploitation of the weak, etc. He did not advocate any subversive activities, but yet people hated him, hated him. And today it's the same thing. But I want you to know something. Jesus' arms are wide open to the whole world. Rich, poor, male, female, bond, free, open to everyone, open to everyone. It's inclusive. Well, the word inclusive. Well, this is inclusive. He is inclusive. So what is the problem? Why don't people come? Because their eyes are blinded. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Remember, that's where the battleground is, your mind. So they, can, they do not believe or receive the gospel of Christ. Receive the gift. That's what we have to do. Many Christians, not many Christians, many people in this world have been given the Christian message. When it gets down to it, they don't want to have God in charge of them. They don't want to submit their lives to Jesus. And in Matthew, excuse me, Luke 19, 14, it says this. His, they, the, the citizens sent a delegation to him saying, we will not have this man rule over us. We, and, and that's a parable of the meanest. But in, in, in Jesus is clearly saying in that parable, we will not have these men rule over us. We will not submit to Jesus Christ. And that's why people don't want to come into the family of God, usually. Now, think about this. The Christian life is a submitted life. I submit my life to the Lord Jesus. We mutually submit to one another in Ephesians chapter 5. We mutually do that. Now, I, we're having a baptism that's coming up. And baptism is a command by the Lord Jesus Christ to every believer to be baptized, to identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. In baptism, you are giving a public proclamation that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would urge you to obey this imperative, this command of Jesus to be baptized. You are telling the world that I am denying myself, I'm taking up my cross, and I'm following the Master. I'm following the Lord Jesus that's why baptism is important. You want to tell everybody I belong to him. Now, this week, it's Tuesday evening. Jesus is meeting in the temple area. He's had his last discussions that he's ever going to have with the Pharisees. The rest of the week, he's going to concentrate on his disciples and do disciple last-minute teaching. Arnold Fruchtenbaum gives us some, in, some input into this. Quote, Immediately preceding the Olivet Discourse, the Messiah spoke the final words of his public ministry, which is contained in Matthew 23, 1 through 39, which contains the denunciation of the leadership of Israel, especially for their guilt in leading the nation to reject the Messiahship of Jesus. 
With these last words, the public ministries of Messiah as a prophet came to an end, and for the remainder of his last few days on earth, he will deal exclusively with his disciples. This is where we are today. Now, before we get into this teaching, we need to do some prep work. Please, everybody pay attention at this point. I know that right now you're mostly paying attention, so that's good, but there's a tendency as I go on for people to just <laughs> go into different areas. Believe me, I've sat there. I know exactly what goes on. I mean, all of a sudden, Jason's teaching, and I've got some other verse I'm looking at over here, and I'm picking him back up a few minutes later and going, oh, what did I miss? You know, But just for right now, hear this. There's a passionate debate over what the Olivet Discourse is. Is it involving the church? Is it involving just Israel? Is it involving the church and Israel? And the way that I view this is that the Olivet Discourse is dealing with Israel with some principles we can learn from the church. Now, you don't have to agree with that because a lot of people don't agree with it, okay? But that's the way I think it really comes down. And, there, and there's debates over eschatology and when this stuff happening, and there's people that believe it all happened in the past, and some people believe it's just an allegory, and we're going to get into that more in just a second. John MacArthur helps us. He says this, the teaching of the Olivet Discourse it's much debated and frequently misunderstood, largely because it is viewed through the lens of a particular theological system or interpretive scheme that makes the message, now listen to this, appear complex and enigmatic. But the disciples were not learned men. And Jesus' purpose was to give them clarity and encouragement, not complexity and anxiety. He gave us something that we could understand. That is applicable to us today. Now, I'm going to discuss the varying views of eschatology. That just means the study of end-time events, okay? That's all it is. Now, I want you to also think about something. When Martin Luther uh, started the Reformation, or was mainly responsible for the Reformation, he was dealing with soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, how a person is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. He was a Catholic monk, and he, he, wanted, he wanted, didn't want to break away from Catholicism. But he never addressed the eschatology in the early Protestant church. So most of the church today are amillennialist. Amillennialism. Ah means a, no, or without. There is no millennial reign of Christ. Most people do not believe in a millennial reign of Christ. Let me read this verbatim to you so I don't miss a step. With the so-called conversion to the Christian faith, faith of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who united the church with the world, that persecution was immediately lifted, creating a false impression in the minds of many that Christ's kingdom in some way had already arrived. Though he was not personally present, but considered to be reigning in heaven. So that became the view of the church. Augustine in the mid-300s popularized this, and Greek philosophy entered into the church. A Grecian outlook entered the church. Platonism became popular. And what is Platonism? Talking about the body is nothing, the soul is everything, and you can do whatever you want with the body, but just as long as you treat your soul or your spirit properly. That's where the Gnostics came from, that you can do whatever you want as long as your soul is okay. That is a false teaching. That was a Gnostic view. 
With that teaching also came in that reality is an illusion. What you see is not literal. So what has happened in the early church from 300 on all the way to today, most of the church, when I say the church, you know, it's most denominations, they use the allegorical approach, symbols and pictures, not literal interpretation of Scripture. That is what it became popular. So the Greek influence entered the church and is still very much in the church today. So we need to realize that. Uh, they believe that revelation is symbolic and not literal. Their, this view predominates in the Catholic church for sure, but also in the Reformed church. And, and from this comes replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel and that God is now through with Israel. He has no plan for Israel whatsoever. So, also with that came a view of Revelation chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 6 through 19, that all of that stuff was in the past. All of that stuff was, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. That's called preterism. Preterism. Most of the church believes this stuff was already fulfilled. There's no need to, to worry about your future. So some of the things that I'm going to be talking about in a few minutes, they don't believe. They don't believe. They don't believe in an antichrist coming. They don't believe in a future kingdom. They don't believe that things are going to devolve. Look, you're living here. I mean, you know what's devolving right before your eyes. So, all the promises again to ethnic Israel now belong to the church. Now, this replacement theology is a false view. I believe it is very false. God made unconditional covenants. This is very important. God made, he does not lie. He made unconditional covenants. Those are agreements. Those are, 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 are things that he's doing with the nation of Israel that must be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. What are these? The Abrahamic covenant, which promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. Blessing would be eventually be Messiah coming into the world. This isn't in your notes, okay? So just please hear. The land covenant a landmass would be promised to the nation of Israel. Now, I want you to know that this picture is going to come up. You are familiar with this picture. We've been here before. This is the nation of Israel. Boom, right here. And remember, we've had the picture in the past of the whole globe and that little splinter of red on that globe indicating what God's people had, that little splinter. Well, in the future, in the millennial reign of Christ, this will be the landmass of Israel. This is the land promise. It will only be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. This never happened under King David. This never happened under any other time in Jewish history. It must be fulfilled because God made a covenantal promise with the nation of Israel. He does not break his promise. The third one is that uh, the Davidic covenant, that Messiah would reign on David's throne. And then David, I think, will actually physically reign under Messiah in Jerusalem. So, the amillennial view, now hear this, listen to this, led to much anti-Semitic treatment and persecution of the Jews throughout history. In Nazi Germany in World War II, the Catholic Church was fully supportive of Hitler. Two-thirds of the Lutheran Church, and by the way, Martin, uh, Martin Luther became a vehement Jewish hater at the end of his life. They, two-thirds of the church, sided with 
Nazism and Hitler. One third called the true church, of which Bonhoeffer was the most popular one, but there's many pastors that stood against Hitler. They remained true, and they were again called the true church. The amillennialist, and this will come up on the screen, try to make everything that Jesus says in chapter 24 relate to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I do not think that is a correct view of Scripture. Now, postmillennialism. Now, this is becoming more popular today. Post means after the millennium, after Christ, Christ's return. There is no 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. Now, what they believe, instead of no millennium, that we're in the millennium now. I'm telling you, if, if this is the millennium now, I mean, this is, the whole thing is anticlimactic. I mean, Jesus promised it's going to be great. The lion laying down with the lamb. No more weapons of war are going to turn into, into farming implements and that sort of thing. And everything's going to be great and wonderful. This is not the millennium, folks. That would be a false view. Uh, they also believe this. The promises relating to the Jews in the Old Testament pertain to the church. Again, that's replacement theology. And many mainline Protestant churches hold to this view today. And this is another thing that they believe that is astounding to me. But many people are jumping on this bandwagon. It is this. The church will usher in the kingdom and the world will be getting better and better and better in preparation for Jesus to come back. Folks, it's not getting better and better and better. It's getting worse and worse and worse. It is not getting better. It's difficult. To, the signs of Christ's coming are all about things getting worse. He's coming back to rescue planet Earth. Remember what he said in Matthew 24. We'll get there some week from now, okay? I don't know what weeks, but weeks from now. When he says... These, unless he was to return, lest these days be cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. That's how bad the world will be before he comes back. No flesh would be saved alive unless he intervened. There's a historical position. The events prophesied in the book of Revelation are happening all throughout history. There's not a seven, literal seven-year tribulation period. There's not many that adhere to this now. Uh, and finally, there's premillennialist. That is what we would be here. Christ returns pre, before the millennial reign of Christ. We believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture unless there are symbols there that we have to acknowledge a symbol. Like, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Well, God is not a hen, or, or God is referred to as a rock. There is no rock like our God. God is not a rock. These are things that you have to acknowledge as symbols of something else. But generally speaking, these, these symbols can be interpreted from other areas of Scripture. So the symbols in, in Revelations are explained in Scripture. Now, the groups that believe this would be Calvary chapels, most Baptist churches, most Bible churches tend to have a more literal approach to expositing or exegeting Scripture. Now, what we believe, we believe, and I hope you believe, but if you don't believe it, I hopefully convince you of this. We believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period. We believe that God is not done with Israel. Now, look at if you ever thought that God is done with Israel, if you can turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 26, really fast while I'm talking, I want to read this to you. 
And he says very specifically, I do, this is Paul speaking, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery, this mysterion, this thing not revealed in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament, lest you become wise in your own opinion. For blindness in part, not full, there's still Jews being saved, few here and there. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all of Israel will be saved. Now, how do you deal with that? There's going to be all of Israel saved. There's a thing called the fullness of the Gentiles. That is, that is from, from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. The Gentiles that are going to come in, there'll be a fixed number of Gentiles, the last one to be saved, and then boom, we're going to go into the tribulation period. The, the all of Israel to be saved are those who believe, believing Israel at the end of the tribulation, It'll be at the very end, the last couple days before they believe. So we believe in that. We also believe that God's wrath will be poured out upon the nations of the world that have rejected him. God's will is to restore the Jews to be his people. If we hold to a premillennial view, it is easier to understand Matthew 24, Daniel, and Revelation. So is everybody with me up to this point? Okay, good. So verse 1, the disciples are confused about the temple being destroyed. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, why are they distressed? Because he has just told them that your house will be left to you desolate in 2338. And that disturbed them. They knew exactly what that meant, that the temple would be destroyed. How could this massive complex be destroyed? I want you to think about this complex. When you go to Israel on a trip to Israel, you will see these stones. And if you go through the tunnel underneath the western wall, you're going to see this stone. This is a stone that's 12 feet by 45 feet. It's the biggest stone in the temple complex. Now, there are other stones that we're going to see in just a few minutes, not now, but in just a few minutes, that typified the stones in, in the building. But these are giant stones, firmly placed, difficult to dislodge, and they were dislodged. I believe the disciples thought that Jesus would bring the kingdom at their time, the kingdom now. Jesus taught them in the Lord's Prayer, which will come up on the screen. Watch what it says. Most people know it. He told them to pray like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. And that's what they were looking for. The disciples were looking for the kingdom at that very time. Verse 13, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I believe the disciples were looking for the kingdom of God now. And I want to suggest to you, every generation from those disciples to us today, have been looking for the kingdom to come. Well, it's going to come our generation. It's going to come in our generation. Oh, it's going to come. And look how everything's changing. It's coming. Every generation thought this. And you know what? There's always been skeptics from the time of Jesus all the way to today, but there's more skeptics today as we get closer to the end. These are the Second Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 people, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days. That's from the time of Christ until his return. But it increases as we get closer. 
walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You guys have been saying this all along. You keep telling us that Jesus is coming and everything stays the same. Is that true? Is that true? No, it is. just let me, do the, let me try that again. More than Chris this time. Is that true? No, it is not true. It is not true. Today, the world deny, doubts and denies Jesus' return. Many so-called Christians doubt this is the time. But I want to say something, folks. I think that you should be excited about the time that we're living in. We have never lived in a time like this. The Antichrist system is full speed ahead. Now, we've talked about this multiple times, and sometimes people say, oh, this is a fantasy. This is, this is just conspiracy stuff. This is what's happening today. Please understand this. Globalism is on the march like never before since the Tower of Babel. A one-world government, a one-world currency, a one-world religion is being pushed today like never in the history of the world. Where, is it? Where have you ever heard of open borders? This free immigration. God has always been for borders. And I want you to think about this. Think about this seriously. The mark of the beast technology is here right now. You are living in it. No other generation this could have been pulled off in, but it can in our generation. It might be future, but at least we qualify. Digital control exists today. And listen to this. The masses, the masses love the technology. It's convenient. It's easy peasy. Don't take my technology away. It makes life easier. But you know what you do? You sacrifice freedom for convenience. Freedom for convenience. I want to share with you something. This would be a good time to listen. This is from Andy Woods, his pastor's point of view this last week. This was reported in the Express on June 9th, 2023. He talked about an Aldi's, you know, like the Aldi's supermarket that we go to try to get cheap food, and that's where, that's where we go, okay? In London, the, the, the people, that they came in one day, and their money was of no value. They had to have the app on their phone in order to get in. A QR code or an AP code to get in. Now, Karen Vader gave me a video last week that I want to share with you to show you this, what this technology is doing today and is actually happening today. So it's 35 seconds, so it's going to come on the screen right now. Please watch this, and thank you, Karen, if you're in here. Thank you for showing me that. This is me casually walking to get my groceries, but it's not as casual as it might seem. Let me show you what I mean by that. I got everything that I needed. I got my fruit, I got my yogurts, mint tea, and now it's time to pay. Well, because we're in Silicon Valley, I'm not going to pay with my credit card. I am going to pay with my palm. The thing is, there's this new technology that lets you connect your credit card and your ID to your palm so that you don't have to carry any credit cards with you anymore. You don't even have to have your phone with you. This this is my total, this is my palm, this is me scanning it. And I would later be able to see my purchases in my Amazon account. Do you think it's convenient or just another way to track us everywhere? Did you hear that? That's a profound statement. Do you think it's just a way to track us? Extrapolate from that, control us. 
This is all about control, folks. Think about China, who has a social credit score system now that the West is just dying to, 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 to copy because it totally controls the population. They'll lock you down if your score is not high enough. You won't be able to purchase at different stores if your score is not high enough. The Antichrist system will bring you convenience, but it'll also bring control. Folks, Jesus is coming. Just remember Arnold Fruchtenbaum's statement. You can almost hear, when you see these things happening, you can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. Verse 2, the temple will be destroyed. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things, the temple beauty? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And you know what happened? 42, 40 years later, Rome came, Vespasian came, and started the attack in 66 AD. Nero died. And there was chaos and riots in Rome. Vespasian was called back. This is significant because Matthew doesn't tell us about this time frame. Luke does. Listen to what Luke says in Luke 21, 20 and 21. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. There was a respite of time when Vespasian went back and everyone who believed in the Lord Jesus, what he taught, knew this was the sign. This was our opportunity to escape. No believers died in that siege. 1.1 million died when Titus, his son, was sent back and finished the job. And not leaving one stone upon another. The temple was destroyed. It was catastrophic for the Jewish people. The temple was central to their worship. God wanted to meet with his people in the temple. And the glory of God dwelt in Solomon's temple. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has taught me and hopefully you guys about the glory of God. The Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. When the um, omnipresent God decides that he's just going to focus his presence in one place, that's the Shekinah. Not that he's still not all over, but he's allowing you to see a presence of him. The Shekinah glory appeared in a new form in the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory of God. And please hear this. Today, believers reflect the Shekinah glory of God. The Spirit of God lives in you. That's the glory of God, be the Shekinah living. But we reflect this to the world around us. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Matthew 5.14, you believers are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Folks, today God dwells in you. You are the temple of the living God. Where do you take your temple? How are you treating the temple that God dwells in? This is an important question. This is not just, just cursory. Christ in you, the glory of God dwells in every believer. When you think about the temple, there was the first temple was Solomon's temple. 
It was destroyed in 586 B.C. after persistent, consistent idolatry. The Jews went into 70 years of captivity, were allowed to go back and rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. He built the second temple. The second temple held, it was, it was just minuscule compared to Solomon's temple. It didn't have anything near the beauty, and there was a lot of sadness involved with that. The second temple was beautified by Herod, and it became a magnificent, much larger temple area under Herod, which was destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D., the third temple will be the Antichrist temple, which I believe will be destroyed by Messiah when he comes back. And the fourth temple is the millennial temple that will actually be present in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. Now, a fact of history, we cannot deny this. In 70 AD, not one Rome came and not one stone was left upon another. Now, when you go to Israel on your Israel trip, you're going to go to the Western Wall, and you're going to see all these stones that are there. They're impressive. They're all over the place. They're large stones. And you're going to see these, and these Roman soldiers who set fire to the temple melted the gold. The gold evidently went between these cracks. And in a fit of hysteria, they hated the Jewish people because they put up such a stout defense. But also, this gold they wanted, they tore down every stone to try to get to the gold. That is exactly what happened at that time. Now, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus three important questions. These are important questions to us also. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, do we not want to know this? I mean, we are interested in this, okay? We want to know. So Jesus, now the setting, Jesus is across the street from the temple. And again, when you go to Israel, you go across the street on the Mount of Olives, and you're going to be looking at the Temple Mount. And this is a picture of some tourists looking over the Temple Mount. Now, if you notice, there's no temple there. You see the Dome of the Rock. But one day, I believe that the temple will be rebuilt on that area, in that area. In a private meeting with his disciples, Jesus is going to give them need-to-know information. Now, in Mark chapter 3, or excuse me, 13, 3, it reveals who these guys were. It was Jesus' inner circle. Now, you Bible students know who the inner circle of Jesus was. Peter, James, and John. But then Andrew was also there, so he got to be part of this thing too. And he asked the question, when will these things, the question is asked, when will these things be? When will the temple be left desolate? And Matthew, again, does not answer the question. Matthew is all about future. When we talk about Matthew 24, it is future. But Luke tells about the present. Luke 21, 20. When, but when you see Jerusalem, again, surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Question number two and three. What will be the sign of your coming? We want to know that. We're living in this epoch of time where we want to know what's happening and the end of the age. Now, both these questions address the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. I believe Matthew 24, and it's going to get quite controversial here because when you get deep into Matthew 24, you're going to be seeing where one is taken, one is left, and many, many believe that is the rapture. And these are good Bible students. And I'm going to make an argument 
or what I believe is the correct view of that. And you may not agree, and that's okay. But anyway, uh, the Olivet Discourse, is all, in my mind, is all about Israel and not the church. The rapture is for the believing church. Now, I have an overhead here comparing the rapture and the second coming. This is significant. Now, the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. The second coming is at the end as the tribulation is ending. Christ comes for the saints at the rapture. Christ comes with us. We get to go with him from heaven. Christ takes the saints to heaven. Christ brings the saints back. In the rapture of the church, Christ returns to the, in the clouds. At the second coming, he returns to the earth. At the, at the rapture, he's not seen. We get caught up to meet him in the air. Oh, at the second coming, every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7. And the rapture is the blessed hope of the church. It is the great day of wrath is the second coming. It is not good for planet earth for the second coming. His wrath will be poured out. He'll deal definitively, definitively with the earth dwellers that are rebelling against him. Folks, the tribulation period is all about the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel, that last seven years that needs to be completed. The tribulation, I believe, is a seven-year period of time that God is going to pour out His wrath on an unbelieving, rebellious earth. And I believe that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are all part of the wrath of God, the, the tribulation period. The church is not present during the 70th week during the wrath of God. That is what I believe. That's a pre-trib view. Now, there is a mid-tribulation view, and I'm pointing this out because I could be wrong. So, if we see some of this stuff happening, then just switch your eschatology to mid-trib. But right now, you can be safely, I think, pre-trib, but until I'm proven wrong, then... But I wanted to put this up here. Their stuff is just the same, except down here in number four. They believe the judgment and the wrath of God begin with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, that the six sealed judgments are the wrath of Antichrist. I disagree with that. I don't think the wrath of Antichrist happens until the abomination of desolation. But if I am wrong and these people are right, I want you to know this is that view. They, are, they would be pre-trib. See, they would be pre-trib because they don't believe the tribulation really starts until that last three and a half years. So with that, at least you've seen both of those views. We can eliminate the amillennial view and the post-trib view. Now, why I believe it's pre-trib? Why am I so passionate about this? Daniel 9.24 is all about the 70 weeks prophecy for the nation of Israel exclusively, for, the, for his people, for the nation of Israel, not the church. I do not believe the church will be in the tribulation, was, which is designed specifically for Israel. Not the church to be here for part of it in that seven years. Specifically for Israel. Now notice what Daniel 9.24 says. It'll come up on the screen. Seventy weeks are determined. This is Gabriel speaking. Interrupts Daniel from his prayer. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. This is all Messiah. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Had they believed in Messiah, this would have all been accomplished. 
But they didn't. I want to give you the 70 weeks prophecy one more time. And please go back in your memory banks and try to remember what this is. From the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes. Nine, this would be in, in 925 and 26. It will be 69 week years. 69 week years. Messiah is cut off in Daniel 9.26. He's killed. He's killed. Time for the Jews stop at this point. The 70th week was never completed. It will be completed in the tribulation period. This is now the church age that we are living in now. At the end of the church age, I believe the rapture will occur right here before the, seventh, the, the last week starts. The abomination of desolation happens in the middle of the tribulation. This is when Antichrist comes to full power. He is not in full power here. He is influencing the world. He is leading the world in a direction away from God. But his power comes slowly. Remember in Daniel chapter 7, he is the little horn. He is ascending to power slowly. But oh, in the middle of the week, he assumes full power. And that's when the abomination of desolation comes, when he insists that everyone take a mark to be identified with him. Folks, when you take the mark, you are pledging allegiance to the Antichrist, to worship him over God. Now, some closing thoughts. We simply do not know the day or the hour that the Lord will return. But one thing we know is that the Lord will return. So if the amillennialists just happen to be out, you know, by some reason to be correct on their eschatology, they believe, they're still orthodox, they believe that Jesus will come back. They believe Jesus will come back. We will know the signs of the times. Now, this is an important concept. We will know the signs of the time, what to expect. We are expected. The church is expected to know the signs of the times. You cannot get away with it's to pretend these are conspiracy theories. I'm not looking. I'm not seeing. I'm not paying attention to this. That won't work. God holds you responsible. Now, there's some interesting things happen that Jason has really brought out a lot, particularly in our men's group and that sort of thing, that I want to expound on. Number one of interest is the Pope has just coincidentally announced a seven-year plan. Seven-year plans starting in 2023. Of interest, the 2030 agenda. Now, Jason's mentioned this many times, and, and, and a lot of times you just let this fly over your heads and think, 2030 agenda, what's the big deal? I don't even know if that's going to happen or not. This is, like, like I say, conspiracy stuff. This is real, folks. This is real. Let me tell you about the 2030 agenda. 193 nations signed on to This is a United Nations thing. 193 nations signed on to it in 2015. All signed on to this. Now, there's a problem. It isn't progressing like they thought it would progress. That's why they're having an emergency meeting this September. This September, listen to this. The SDG Summit scheduled for September 18th and 19th, 2023, is to expedite this thing that was slowed down. I think Trump kind of slowed things down. Slowed it down. And they want to get this thing moving to, and, and they say it specifically, a one world government. Now watch how they cloak this. This is how it's presented to the population. People that don't know God are going to be smoothed by this. 
on behalf of the people we serve. Oh, it sounds all so wonderful, so altruistic. We have adopted a historic decision on a comprehensive, far-reaching, and people-centered set of universal and transformative goals and targets. We commit ourselves to work tirelessly for all of you people for full implementation of this agenda by 2030, seven years. We resolve between now and 2030, now watch this, to end poverty and hunger everywhere, to combat inequalities within and among countries. You know what that means? Redistribute the wealth. You get to live like they live in Bangladesh. Isn't that great? Wonderful. Yes, yes, okay. To build peaceful and inclusive societies, get the tag words, to protect human rights, promote gender equality, you know what that means, and the empowerment of women and girls. That's abortion on demand, folks, all over the world. And to ensure the lasting protection of the planet and its natural resources, climate change, climate change, climate change, climate change, electric cars, electric cars, get rid of gas, get rid of gas. And it's being pumped down your throats, allegedly to save the planet. You know, there's thousands, thousands of, cli of climate science, cli client scientists that disagree with this conclusion of climate change. Climate does change. It vacillates. It goes up and down all over the place. But to suggest that we are affecting the climate of the world, that goes beyond reason. And listen, the finally says, this is an agenda of unprecedented scope. It is accepted by all countries. It is applicable to all countries, the universal goals and targets which we develop for the entire world. This is going to be forced down everyone's throat. Now this, and Jason has brought this up many times eloquently, this is called the Great Reset. The Great Reset. We're resetting the way world is run. And this is where they come up with this, own nothing and be happy. Own nothing and be happy. The World Economic Forum under Klaus Schwab is all in on this. The World Health Organization, all in. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, going to One World Monetary said, all in. Global corporations, media, and many in the so-called church are all in on this whole thing. They're all in on the fix. Folks, you're living in an unprecedented time in history. Of interest, technology is now present. It's going to come up on the board again for the Antichrist system to be implemented. Of interest, technology is messing with God's gene pool, just like at the times of Noah. Of interest, the church that predominates at the end of the age, end of the time, is the Laodicean church. It is the lukewarm, spew you out of my mouth. It is the church that looked great and wonderful and big and ostentatious and look how wonderful we are. And Jesus said, no, you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. You're not covered with the blood of Christ. You're not covered with the righteousness of Christ. Now, different churches predominated at different times in history. Now, I have a picture here for you. It goes in a clockwise manner. Out of the chute is the church of Ephesus. They lost their first love. They had a lot of good things going for them, but they got caught up in church work, and they kind of forgot about Jesus, and they came back. The church of Smyrna, what happened 
was the persecuted church. And this is where tens of thousands of Christians died. And then you had the church of Pergamos, which was the church becoming more compromised. And, and, and the fourth one is the church of Thyatira. This is the, where the Catholic church came up. This was the corrupt church. And then the Reformation came, and this is the church of Sardis. It is called the dead church, the dead church, interestingly. And then in six is the Philadelphia church. Everybody thinks they're the Philadelphia church. Folks, the Philadelphia church was predominated in the 17th and 1800s where missionaries went all over the world. The doors were open in all countries. You can go to China. You can go to any place in the world. That was the Philadelphia church. But the church that predominates now is the church that you see all over the place. It's the Laodicean church. Take this word of God out. You want to be Laodicean. You take this out and you start getting caught up in programs and other things to fill in the gaps. And you become fodder for false teaching. When you take this out, you take away your groundwork for knowing what is right and wrong. Now, of interest, the last thing, God, I believe this with all of my heart, God is giving the Western world over to a debased mind. I believe we're in stage three of the judgment of God upon a nation or an individual. Anti-God, anti-good, anti-right, anti-honorable. We're living in an age we're calling good evil and evil good is acceptable. It's acceptable. What is this madness? Madness has become the norm in America and again, I believe this is the judgment of God. Judgment of a nation or an individual that God gives over to their sinful desires. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book for the church. For the true church, I might say. The true church, the real believers. And that book is, we will not be silenced. We will not be silenced. We are the people of God with the rod of iron up our spine. We are to speak the truth in the culture that we're living in. We will not be silenced. The church must speak. Transgender story hour must be confronted. Folks, if they start that in this community, we must, in mass, go and protest that. Now, we don't have to be nasty and miserable and all that stuff, but we must stand for the truth. We must stand for the truth. We have a voice, use it. The Olivet Discourse is warning us about what is coming. God, and listen to this, God always, always, always warns before he judges. Think of Noah and the ark. He preached for lots of years while the ark was being built. Angels warned before Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel. Turn and repent. Don't go down this road. Don't go down this road. And God has given you his word, his prophetic word to tell you what is coming. He's warned his church. He's warned his church what to look for. Folks, don't walk around with your blinders on. Don't walk around with your blinders on. What are we to do? As the church, as the true church, we must, must, must return to our biblical roots. We need to talk about a real Jesus, not the pretend Jesus that's being taught in so many places. Just give you everything. Have everything right now. It's your best life now. Look, Jesus told us what it's like to live here. It's much better living for Jesus. I believe he does prosper you and helps take care of you, but it's not about that. It's not about here. 
It's about there. It's about what we're doing here for him in preparation for another kingdom. That's the whole book of Matthew about what we're doing in preparation for another kingdom. Get back to your, tell people about a real heaven, a real hell. There is a real, these are real entities. They're not fairy tale. We need to proclaim the life-saving message of Jesus. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but, but by me. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. I am the way, the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but that's the whole thing in, in 14.6. Folks, Bonhoeffer was right. Listen to this. To be silent is to speak, is to be complicit with what is going on around you. You are guilty if you are silent. That's what he's saying here. Bonhoeffer was true. He gave up his life for what he thought was the truth. Speak the truth. Don't blend to be safe. Do not bow down to the cultural pressure to conform or else. Do not give up living. Now, this is important. We do not know when Jesus is coming. So I would urge you not to get such rabbit rapture fever that you give up on life. I'm not going to prepare for retirement. I'm not going to go on a vacation. I'm not going to get a new car. I'm not going to, whatever your life involves, live your life, but live with an attitude of expectation of Jesus coming. We don't know when he's going to come back. And we have an assignment while we are waiting to tell people the truth about Jesus. Let us resolve to share the gospel, to live it out, to not be ashamed with the rod of iron, Holy Spirit up our spine, may we tell people the truth and do it in love. Not like I'm doing right now with all this straining stuff, but you, you want to be loving to them and kind to them. Finally, folks, tell people about Jesus, their only hope. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. There's always the admonition to watch. Church, watch. Watch for the signs. I'm so, so thankful for Jason that he's tuned us in to these signs. And Nick, and people in our Thursday group where we really, Thursday men's group, you want to hear about this stuff? Then you come to the Thursday men's group every other week. This coming Thursday, by the way, we meet again. What are we to do? We are to watch. What, is, what am I watching for? Am I watching the hummingbirds on the hummingbird feeder like I do every day outside my window? And Oh, that's cool. That's neat. No, we're watching for the signs of the times. To not be caught off guard. And then stand fast in the faith. Don't be afraid. You are given the prophetic word so you're not fearful. But expecting. It's an expectation thing. Not to be fearful. This is going to happen. And then be brave and be strong. And then the verse goes on. Whatever you do, do in love. Whatever you do, do in love. We're to love people. Take the high ground and say with Martin Luther. Here we stand. We cannot do otherwise. The Olivet Discourse, this is what is coming, folks. We are to watch and be ready. Now, if you are courageous enough to come back <laughs> to hear more of the Olivet Discourse, because we're going to get into the verses four on, which I think talk about the seal judgments. So we're going to be talking about this stuff in-depth that we went through in Revelation. It's going to be an interesting ride here. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, may we be men and women of the book. May we be men and women of truth. May we be men and women of courage. Lord, we admit it. We are weak in ourselves, but we are strong in you. We cannot do this, carry out our assignment without the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I pray now that each person in here will commit their lives fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and to live filled with the Spirit of God. This half-in, half-out Christianity will not work in the world that is devolving before our eyes. May we be all out for you, our Lord, our God, our King, who was all out for us when he came and died for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.